There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Fun Factory, written and read by Chris England. Chapter 21, Over by Christmas. It was all going to be over by Christmas. That's what everyone said. That's what everyone thought, on both sides, apparently. The Germans thought that if they pushed quickly through Belgium and took Paris, then that would pretty much be that. So they surrounded Liège, a well-fortified little garrison town just across the border that Stan and I had played when we were on our uppers back in the summer of 1912. The piece we were in was an incomprehensible nonsense entitled Fun on the Tyrol, and even then the town had seemed to be on standby, waiting for something even more awful to happen. Apparently it had. Evidently we had some kind of treaty with Belgium which obliged us to step in to preserve their independence, and so that was that. We were in. In America there was much interest in the war. To begin with, it seemed impossible that America could take sides, being a nation made up almost entirely of immigrants. As well as the numbers who could trace their heritage back to the Pilgrim Fathers, there were many more who had come from Germany, from Russia, from France, from Ireland, from the Balkan countries, all mixed together in that melting pot all of which meant the American view was that of an interested but detached observer. There was even smug talk of how the war could be good for business, as America was ideally placed to trade with both sides at once, so men on both sides could be killed, virtually simultaneously, with American bullets. This even-handed neutrality didn't last all that long, though. Before long, the newspapers were filled with salacious stories of atrocities committed by brutal German soldiers as they struggled to take plucky Belgium, of the rape and murder of women and children by the monstrous Kaiser's cohorts. There were incidents in America, beginning to creep into conversations here and there, of German shop windows being trashed, of people with German-sounding names being spat at in the street. The fond hopes of a boom in trade were quickly dashed too, as the Atlantic became a battlefield. German submarines threatened to sink any shipping attempting to cross between America and England, and the number of ships prepared to risk it was dramatically reduced. This meant that my hopes of seeing Tilly and Wallace again any time soon rested on an early resolution of the conflict, and so I scoured the papers daily for any indication that a decisive moment was in the offing, but as Christmas approached it became clear that the war in Flanders, where the British expeditionary force had halted the Germans, was going to drag on well into 1915 so Tilly would not be able to keep her promise to return to us within a couple of months, and I would not, realistically, be able to make my way over to reunite with her and Wallace. Crossings were just impossible. You couldn't get a ticket for love nor money, and it wasn't as if I had either. Sid Chaplin made it over, though, somehow, in November, and benefited from the sort of leg-up that Charlie was so anxious not to afford to me or Stan. He started working at Keystone, developing a pear-drop-shaped screen character called Gussel, which I'm pleased to say never took. Those of us without Chaplin's connections were rather stuck, and even the post was problematical, quite apart from the fact that you never knew for certain if your letter would actually make it without being sent to the bottom of the briny by one of the Kaiser's U-boats. Really, you might have been better off sticking it in a bottle and chucking it off a cliff. I simply hadn't a clue where to write to. You see, when Tilly left, we'd been so confident that it would be easy to meet up again, 
that she'd taken a list of our engagements for the upcoming eight weeks, believing it would just be a question of aiming for one and pitching up at the stage door. Or failing that, the inevitable Irish pub round the corner. We hadn't even considered the possibility of writing to one another. I did try writing to her, care of the police station in Great Yarmouth, sending her a list of our engagements as far into the future as I could manage, but I had no idea if that had got through to her. It didn't stop my heart from thumping with anticipation whenever I approached a new stage door, but there was never any word from her, let alone the surprise appearance of her and Wallace that I daydreamed about constantly. The four comiques, now myself, Stan, Ed and Wren, continue to play the Nutty Burglars in John W. Considine's smaller theatres for the next few months. The word from the theatre managers in almost every place we played was that they were going to recommend to Considine that he put us into more substantial venues, as we certainly had the chops for a step up. So slowly, but surely, we began to find ourselves in ever so slightly more impressive theatres, and our wage packets became ever so slightly more agreeable too. I barely noticed, though, as it just meant there was a little more money for me to drink away after the evening's performances, wherever we were, moping about Tilly and Wallace, wondering how I was ever going to see them again, and cursing the blasted Germans and Charlie Bloody Chaplin. Charlie himself continued to churn out his two reelers, and we ignored them as best we could, still simmering with resentment for the way he had stymied us back in Los Angeles. I was, anyway. Stan always came away subdued and thoughtful after seeing a new Chaplin flicker, there was one called Doe and Dynamite, I remember, that autumn, that did particularly well, and another entitled His Musical Career, which Stan was very taken with. It featured an attempt to get a piano up a long staircase that he seemed to think a very promising scenario. As it happened, I was not the only one of the comiques who was dissatisfied with life's rich tapestry as that much-vaunted Christmas approached. Ed Hurley had been chafing at the bit ever since he joined us, unhappy at being employed effectively by myself and Stan, whom he regarded as belonging at least a couple of rungs beneath him on the great ladder of show business. One evening he joined us in the bar, which was by no means his regular habit, I might add, and decided to push the matter. We sat in a booth, partitioned off from the rest of the place by a screen with stained glass panels, and he prodded the table with his forefinger to emphasise his points. "'The thing is,' he said, "'when we started on this tour with you, "'it was only supposed to be for a couple of months at the most.' "'That's true,' Stan said, "'but events... "'I know, I know, exactly,' Ed butted in, "'but the fact is there is no telling when Tilly will come back, "'if she ever does.' "'Ed, for goodness sake,' Wren cried, glancing at me solicitously. "'Listen, there's no point in beating about the bush. "'She's gone, and she's not coming back. "'There, I've said it. "'So Wren and I are no longer filling in, are we? "'We're no longer the second best option. "'We are it.' We're both part of the act, equal parts with the two of you, and that is how we should be proceeding into the foreseeable future. I glowered at him, thinking that the foreseeable future looked pretty grim if I was to be spending it with Edgar Hurley, but Stan was more conciliatory. Well, we're already splitting the take four ways, he said. Even though the three of us have more to do than you do, I put in, feeling provocative. Ed's gaze was icy. I'm not talking about the money, Ed said and the effort he was making to keep his temper under control showed in the twitch at his jaw hinge. "'What I mean is, we should all have an equal say in all the decisions that are made regarding the future of the four comiques.' "'What do you have in mind?' Stan asked, a mildly puzzled expression on his face. "'Well,' Ed said, "'I've been thinking that perhaps it would be a good notion to come up with a different piece.' Wren covered her eyes with her hands. I imagined she'd been privy to what was coming next. "'A different piece?' Stan said. One that makes more profitable use of the talents of the individual members of the team, Ed said, 
and sat back in the manner of a man who has just made an unanswerable point. "'Meaning yourself,' I said, cutting to it. Ned said nothing, merely inclining his head to acknowledge that, of course, this was obvious. "'Oh,' Stan said. "'I see.' "'Nice try,' I said. "'But if you think in your wildest dreams that—' Stan put a hand on my arm, and I realised I was getting up out of my seat. "'Now look,' Stan said and even though the four of us were nominally equal partners in this venture, there was an unspoken agreement that Stan was the leader. The Nutty Burglars is doing better and better. We're getting better bookings, and there's every chance that finally, finally, it's going to start paying off for us. So where's the sense in ditching it and starting again from scratch, trying to establish another act? Even though, he added, kindly, too kindly, I thought, there's no doubt you could shoulder a heavier burden, and should the opportunity arise for you and Wren to move on to something bigger and better, then I'm sure Arthur and I would not wish to stand in your way. I, I can't say fairer than that, can I? Ed, thwarted, seemed to have frozen in his seat for a moment, but then he nodded brusquely, got to his feet, wished us all a good night, and went back to our lodgings, without his wife. That was fair, wasn't it? Stan asked. More than fair, I said. Wren smiled, and Stan went to the bar for some refills. Wren put her hand on my arm. "'Now then,' she said, turning her big brown eyes on me. "'I'm sorry, Wren,' I said. "'There's just something about Ed that rubs me up the wrong way.' "'He was right about one thing, though, wasn't he?' she replied. "'You might as well get used to the idea. Tilly might not be able to return for months. Years, even. This horrible, horrible war.' She's going to have to make a life for herself over there, for her and, and your little boy, and it would only be human for you to do the same. What are you saying? I frowned. Maybe I've, I've had a couple of beers too many, but I'm just saying. We had feelings for one another once, didn't we? And feelings like that never entirely disappear, now do they? I noticed, I could hardly fail to notice, that she was sitting closer to me than she had been a moment or two earlier, and her always spectacular bosom was pressing against my arm. It felt oddly familiar, and at one time, maybe a year and a half before, it would have been the preamble to a snatched liaison in the props and costumes compartment of the Carnot boxcar. But we'd both moved on from that, hadn't we? Feelings, I said, my mouth suddenly dry. Where was Stan with those drinks? You know what I mean, Wren breathed. Now, look here, I said thickly. What I remember is you using me, using me quite shamelessly just to make old Ed jealous. "'Is that all you remember?' she said, coyly, suggestively. "'I remember him giving you a black eye,' I said, "'and everything between you being tickety-boo thereafter. "'Is that what you think? "'And even though you're married, back then I was single, "'but now I'm spoken for. "'By a girl who is thousands of miles away for who knows how long. "'It was a bit of a kiss and a fumble, that's all. "'You know perfectly well that we never... you know... "'Well, maybe if we had.' she whispered in my ear. It will be easier now to forget about it and put the whole chapter behind us. But since we didn't... Stan was walking across the room with our drinks now, and I thought with some relief that this would be a good opportunity to pass the baton, as it were, and visit the facilities to compose and rearrange myself. Before I could move, though, I felt the warm tip of Wren's tongue slip, slowly, warmly, wetly, into my ear. I felt my eyeballs rolling involuntarily up into my head, and all thoughts of standing up were banished for the next few minutes. Then she pulled away quickly, and Stan plonked the three glasses down with a grin, entirely ignorant of what had just occurred. Actually, he said cheerfully, you know what? I have a good feeling about the new year.
As it turned out, Stan's optimism soon seemed more like prescience, as we received a message that our first engagement of January 1915 would be at the Milwaukee Empress. Not one of Considine's biggest or most prestigious, not by any means, but still a considerable step up from the flea pits we had been playing. An Empress, by God! It felt like the start of something bigger, something better, and the four of us passed a very jovial Christmas together in our lodgings as a result. I even managed not to get into any kind of argument with Hurley. Our landlady for that week in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, whipped up a memorable Christmas luncheon with, if not all the trimmings, then at least a goodly proportion of them. We were joined at the table by a couple of acts who were appearing at the Majestic, along with the cowboy Will Rogers. One was called Lennett and Wilson, who styled themselves comedy horizontal bar experts, and I said at one point that I considered myself an expert at standing at the bar until I finally became horizontal, and they laughed as though they'd never heard that one before. The other was an aerial acrobatic double act called Frobel and Rouge. Billy Rouge dressed as a Chinaman on stage, but off it, he was a rather grumpy little New Yorker. Fancy spending Christmas in Disparad de Wild, he grumbled. The what? I said. Wild! The Wild! Oh, world, yes, I see. Their party trick which they showed us in the landlady's parlour that afternoon, was for strongman Bill Frobel to roll Rouge up like a medicine ball and then roll him around, bounce him off walls, throw him in the air and catch him. All in all, it was a very convivial occasion, although, as it happens, Cedar Rapids' audiences had the reputation of being the coldest in the Midwest. We'd all seen a sign backstage in one of the theatres we'd played back in the Bronx, which read, You think you're good? Try playing Cedar Rapids. As if to compliment this, we found a sign by the stage door of the theatre right there in Cedar Rapids, warning, Don't send out your laundry until we've seen your act. However, we four had played Glasgow for Fred Carno, and nothing much was likely to put a scare into us after that. I thought a lot about Tilly and Wallace that day, and wondered what sort of Christmas they were having. I hoped she'd found her father in Great Yarmouth, and that he'd been both well and innocent, but I had no way of knowing. I'd sent I don't know how many letters into the void and Tilly might well have tried writing to me. I just couldn't tell. After that Christmas lunch was over, and we were recovering, Wren suddenly noticed that our landlady had pinned some mistletoe over the door to her parlour. She pulled her husband to his feet, and he groaned under the newly acquired weight of a mass of plum duff to oblige her. Wren insisted on a Christmas kiss from Stan and from Lennett and Wilson, and then she turned to me. "'Come on, then, Arthur,' she whispered playfully. Let's see if this brings back any memories, shall we? She pressed her soft lips to mine and wrapped her arms around my neck, and after a moment I felt the tip of her warm, wet little tongue worming past my defences and exploring my teeth and beyond. The kiss went on and on, and I was uncomfortably aware that Edgar was only a few feet away, but Wren kept her lips locked to mine and her eyes were shut and her belly pressed firmly against me, it was a kind of exquisitely delicious agony that I wished would end but could do nothing to stop. Finally she broke away, and I looked around guiltily, but Edgar had succumbed to the meal and had closed his eyes. Lennett and Wilson were politely complimenting our landlady, but Stan gave me a long, quizzical look. Which meant that as the new year turned I found myself guiltily thinking more about Wren and her evident availability than I did about Tilly, lovely yet far away Tilly, the love of my life. So imagine my state of mind when we four hapless comiques stepped from our cab in front of the Milwaukee Empress in the first week of January, anticipating the first of a new run of proper-sized theatres, a significant step back up towards the big time at last, only to find ourselves faced with a sign on the front doors reading, Under New Management, and a pair of workmen 
in overalls, changing the large sign above the main lobby from Vaudeville Nightly to, of all things in the wide world, Tilly's punctured romance. It was almost too much to take in. A long-established vaudeville theatre turned overnight into a flicker hall. Our main chance trampled mercilessly by Charlie Chaplin's first full-length feature release, and a title, moreover, that made it feel like the cold hand of fate was pointing an accusing finger down at the top of my head. It was like the very crack of doom itself. I stood on the icy pavement, and even though I had my big winter coat on and was not at all cold, I was trembling. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Chapter 22. The Dominoes Topple It was a huge blow, and no mistake. Quite apart from the fact that we'd set such store by clambering back onto the Empress circuit, we now had no work for the week, and there was no one left working at the theatre with any links to the Considine organisation and the network of local theatrical landladies, so we were effectively out on the street. It was, though, only the morning, so there was the rest of that Monday to find a roof at least, if not a replacement engagement. We convened in the warmth of a coffee shop with an open fire, where Stan and I had sometimes breakfasted when we were at the Empress with the Carnos a couple of years before, to discuss our next move. "'I wonder what's happened,' Stan mused. "'Well, clearly something pretty dramatic,' Ed said. "'The pity of it is that no one saw fit to tell us, or even leave a message for us advising us what to do next.' "'They probably had more on their plate than worrying about us,' Wren said." and Ed became indignant. They have a duty to let us know of any changes, so we do not travel unnecessarily. More than that, it's common courtesy. We should not be expected to fend for ourselves like this. I have a good mind to go and tell Considine so himself, to his face. Actually, Stan said, brightening, that is not the worst idea. Chicago's only a couple of hours away. We could be there by mid-afternoon. And if Mr. Considine is not in his office, at least there will be someone who can tell us what we're supposed to be doing. What do you think, Arthur? Hmm? I have to say I was not really fully engaged in the conversation. My mind was spinning after the latest development, and my resolution not to let Chaplin drive me mad in order that I could be the reformed individual Tilly was hoping I could become was being sorely tested. It was his fault, though. He kept doing things that annoyed me. All right, so his movie was not just playing here in Milwaukee, it was released all over the country, and he would hardly have had any say in converting one single vaudeville house into a cinema, but still... I felt him hovering above my head like a dark cloud, further thunderbolts clutched in his perfectly manicured hands, his purple eyes flashing with malevolent mirth. I said, perhaps we should head for Chicago, see if we can't beard old Considine in his cave? What? Yes, why not, I said. There's not likely to be much for us here, is there? So that afternoon, we rode the rails down the west side of Lake Michigan, down into the Windy City, where we made our miserable way to the headquarters of the Sullivan and Considine Comedy Empire, our first inkling that all was really not well came when we reached the reception room. 
Normally this would be packed with hopeful performers of all kinds, typically in their gaudy stage costumes as though they never wore anything else, hoping to be granted an audience with one of the bookers inside. On this day, however, the room was deserted. The reception desk too, which was usually attended by a fiercely unhelpful Harridan, one of a seemingly endless rotation upon whom Considine could call, but this too was unpopulated. The room beyond, which last time I'd seen it had been filled with energetic young chaps and ladies scribbling lists of performers and pinning them to pinboards on the walls alongside giant maps of the continent, was also empty. A few desultory sheets of paper wafted in the breeze from the open door, and one of the maps was keeling over at the corner, having popped a drawing pin onto the floor somewhere. Where once there was busy endeavour and aspiration and hope, now there was only echoing silence. We looked at one another, bemused. "'Where is everyone?' Wren said in a little voice, as though speaking louder might actually have raised the ghosts of the departed. "'Hello?' Stan called out, not wanting to step beyond the receptionist's desk without invitation. Suddenly there was a crash from one of the offices away to our right, as though a great pile of papers had been swept from a desk and thrown to the floor. Evidently there was still someone in residence. Stan, Wren and I were a little wary of intruding, but Hurley was fired up by indignation at having been left high and dry in Milwaukee without any kind of explanation, and he was determined to let somebody know about it. He strode around the receptionist's unoccupied station and went in search of the source of the noise. As he blew through, the half-hanging map sighed to the floor in his wake. Arriving at the office door, Hurley rapped firmly. The door was wrenched open in front of him, and a figure stood there, his broad shoulders blocking out the light from the windows behind. "'Who are you?' the silhouette demanded. "'Well, who are you?' Hurley said, drawing himself up to his full height to try and match the imposing fellow before him. "'Who wants to know?' the fellow growled, and I recognised the voice then. First, tell me to whom I am speaking,' Ed demanded, not wanting to back down. "'They could have gone on like that for some time, I think, if I hadn't stepped forward.' "'Mr. Considine,' I said. "'Good grief,' Stan whispered. "'So it is.' We hardly recognised the man who had been our champion. His hair, normally slicked down to his big square head and oiled to within an inch of its life, was jutting out in all directions. He had not shaved for several days, that much was clear— his collar had sprung free from his shirt at one side and was waving up around his ear. His shirt was hanging out of his trousers and his tie hung loose around his neck. "'Arthur? Stan? Is that you?' Considine said, peering at us over Ed's shoulder. "'Good to see you, fellas. I I'll be with you in a minute. I just need to see what this jumped-up chimpanzee wants from me. It'll be money, if I know anything.' "'Well,' Hurley spluttered, going a sort of beetroot colour. "'He's with us, Mr. Considine,' I said. "'Don't you remember Edgar from the Carno Company?' "'Can't say I do,' Considine frowned. "'I remember this lovely creature, though,' the burly entrepreneur went on, "'pushing past Hurley to take his wife's hand up to his bristly lips. "'What's happened here?' Stan asked. "'Considine slumped and went back to pull his office door shut "'before we got a close look at the chaos within. "'I need a drink,' he said. "'Let's go round to Joe's and I'll tell you all about it.' "'My troubles really began just over a year back,' Considine said a little while later, "'clutching a large glass of bourbon in one big paw. "'Big Tim Sullivan and I had built up the premier vaudeville circuit in the country, "'the first to offer venues coast to coast. "'I could offer a turn seventy weeks straight work with no doubling up. "'I could bring acts over from Europe. "'Well, you know, 
I had the Fred Carno Company tour, the biggest theatres on my circuit, five times in three years. I made Charlie Chaplin, you know? You did, sir, I said, happy to see someone else taking the credit for that. Well, Sullivan, God rest his soul, he wasn't really what you'd call an active partner. He was more of a money man. Most of the organisation fell to me, but we were expanding all the time. I was buying theatres in cities across the land. And where there wasn't a theatre big enough or grand enough for our purpose, well, by God, we'd build one. Yes, sir. No one could hold a candle to us, not even that weasel King Greek. Ed and Wren were lost at this, so I leaned over and filled them in. King Greek is the name Alexander Pantages goes by, I explained. He and Mr. Considine have a big rivalry, isn't that right, sir? You could say that, Considine growled, emptying his glass and waving at the barman for another. If you call sabotage, cheating and theft a big rivalry, then yes, that is what we had. You remember how Pantages had our props and costumes sent to the Yukon? It was before you joined Karno, but we told you of it, I'm sure, Stan said to Ed and Wren, and they nodded. So, in the fall of 1913, Considine began again with a big sigh. Big Tim Sullivan went crazy, crazy as a damned loon. It was the syphilis, they reckon, eating away at his mind. Whatever it was, they locked him up in the booby hatch, and he got worse and worse until, they say, he escaped, and next thing they knew, his body was found on the railroad tracks. No one knows how it got there. God knows he had his fingers in enough pies. He was involved in most of the protection rackets on the Lower West Side for years, so maybe someone had it in for him. It's just as likely, though, judging by the state of his mind the last time I visited him, that he thought he was a locomotive. Good heavens, Rem gasped. So that was my backing, gone, overnight. The Greek got wind of it, however I tried to keep it quiet, and he, he started sniffing around some of my prize houses, seeing if he couldn't shake a couple loose. Well, I'm not a man to just step aside... I saw off Wyatt Earp, you know, when he tried to move in on my gambling houses in Seattle. So I proposed a partnership with Marcus Lowe. He owns nearly as many theatres as me, and he was always looking for a chance to poke the Greek in the eye, just like I am. We were all set to go into business together. But then this damned war kicked off in Europe, and suddenly the value of all Lowe's holdings was less certain. Not to mention that we weren't going to get any acts over from England, not with the U-boats trying to sink all the damn ships. So Lowe got cold feet, and he held off, and he held off, until finally the loan I'd had to take out to buy my latest venture got called in, and I hadn't the money to pay. And since every theatre I've bought has been financed by loans taken out against the one before, the whole circuit is collapsing around my ears like a ring of goddamn dominoes. The whole circuit? Stan breathed. The whole damn thing. And the booking organisation that fed it. And who do you think is carving it up between them? Why, King Greek, of course, and that son-of-a-bitch Marcus Lowe. I swear they were plodding together all along, and Lowe just strung me along until I could no longer support the business I'd built over two decades of blood, sweat, and tears. What could we say to that? We sat in silence, contemplating the ruin of a man who had been our chief hope of building a career in vaudeville. When we got to Milwaukee, Ed said, breaking the moment, the theatre was under new management, and no one was there to tell us, and there was no word. Ed, Wren hissed, clearly our erstwhile boss had more problems to deal with than our embarrassment. Ed, Considine said. It is Ed, right? Edgar. Edgar Hurley. Edgar. You're right. It was not good enough, and I will see that someone is fired first thing in the morning. Thank you, Ed said primly. Of course, I shall have to hire somebody first, so that I will have somebody to fire, but rest assured you can leave the matter in my capable hands. Ed sat, tight-lipped, once again going red in the face. Considine turned to me and Stan. In short, boys, 
I am out of the entertainment business as of now. Don't hitch your flag to my wagon, for I'm surrounded by engines, cutthroat engines. But I wish you all the best. The big man stood and drained another glass, which he smacked down onto the table before stomping out to wallow some more in the ruins of his once mighty empire. After he had gone, we sat there for a while, just staring at the wet rings our glasses had made on the wooden table. The zeros stared back at us, eloquently summing up the balance sheet of our careers at that moment. Even Ed's selfish bullishness was subdued to silent contemplation. Same again? The barman had wandered over to break into our miserable reverie. We looked up, and it suddenly struck us that Considine had left us with the tab. We scrabbled the change from our pockets together to pay it off, and hardly dared risk another drink, much as we wanted one, until we knew where the next dime was coming from. On the corner outside, a street stand was selling the Chicago Tribune. I hadn't seen a newspaper for several days, and I wondered if there had been any changes in the war situation, any hint, however small, that Tilly might soon be able to join me on this side of the Atlantic would have given me a much-needed lift just then, which would make it worth the single coin it cost. The war in Europe was, however, relegated below the fold by a far more important turn of events, neatly summed up by the screaming banner headline, Charlie Chaplin in Chicago. As if things were not bad enough. I threw the newspaper back at the poor fellow who had just handed it to me and stormed off down the street in a blind fury. Behind me I was dimly aware of Wren apologising to the bewildered vendor, turning on her abundant charms, no doubt, to smooth things over. A block or two away I realised that I was going nowhere, indeed had nowhere to go, and I stopped and slumped on a bench just inside a small green park. There was a light covering of snow which I thought nothing of until it started to soak into my trouser legs. As I began to calm down, I suddenly had a flash of what Tilly would have made of my reaction just then. Wasn't this exactly the sort of thing she was talking about just before she left? What a fool I was. Stan caught up with me first. The Hurleys were hanging back. You, um, forgot your paper, Stan ventured, holding up the rag in question. It says that the Germans and the British, on Christmas Day, they all played a game of football in no man's land, between the trenches. That must have been quite a thing. Trenches? No man's land? What the hell is going on over there? I know, I can't really imagine it. My brother, you know, Lance, he fought in the Boer War. Didn't really tell me anything much about it. Actually, I shit myself, was pretty much all he ever said, but I'm pretty sure he was on the move all over the place, not just sat in a hole, with the Boers sat in another hole, fifty yards away, waiting for something to happen. It's incomprehensible, I agree. Hopefully it will all be over soon. So, go on then, I said. What? Tell me what Charlie is doing here. Oh, ah, yes, right, I thought that might be why you... Uh, uh, yes. Stan flipped the war stories out of sight and looked at the lead article. Evidently Charlie has um, broken with Mac, Senate and Keystone and signed a new deal worth, oh, I say, $1,250. A year? A week? A week? Stan nodded, grimacing his disbelief. Plus a $10,000 signing bonus. What? But that's... What idiots are paying him that much? The company is called S&A. They make the Bronco Billy films. I know, in San Francisco. Yes, and they have studios here too, apparently, so Charlie is just starting work now in Chicago, hence the hullabaloo. Stan pushed his hat back and scratched his head. I looked up at the sky and then caught his eye. He started to giggle, and before long I'd started too. 
There was nothing in the world more infectious than Stan laughing, and the whole ludicrous situation we found ourselves in, the sheer gulf between literally having no work at all, a benefactor going bust, no prospects, nowhere to stay, and barely enough money to feed ourselves until the end of the week, and Charlie Chaplin starting a new job at $1,250 a week. Well, we had to laugh. 